morning. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Ted O'Toole, guiding teacher at MVMC, and I would like to introduce our guest speaker today, Pamela Ayo Yatunde. And uh, many of you know her because uh, she uh, frequently practiced with us when she lived here in the Twin Cities. She lives in Chicago now. And she's been a guest speaker on Sundays before, I think at least twice. Uh, she's a pastoral counselor. She's the author of Casting Indra's Net, Fostering Spiritual Kinship and Community. She's a co-founder of the uh, Center of the Heart. She's a professor of pastoral care and counseling. She is the author of uh, many things. She has written for uh, Buddha Dharma and Lion's Roar magazines. It's uh, great to see you again, Ayo, and uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say this morning. Thanks again for coming. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. <coughs> I'm in a mood this morning. <laughs> I have to admit I'm in a mood this morning because there's just so much going on in the world that's so discouraging uh, and frightening. And it just leaves me with a heavy heart while at the same time, I feel so uh, enlivened and encouraged uh, by being with you all and knowing that uh, our practices are uh, preparing us, have prepared us and can prepare prepares even more for the times we're in and the challenges we are facing, if we are willing to face them together. And that's in part what I want to talk about today, our willingness to face these challenges together as a community, as a community of practitioners. And if you don't mind my just jumping in and saying right now, whether you like it or not, as family. <laughs> as family, as uh, being related to one another, as seeing each other as kin. Uh, and I think that if we don't see each other that way, in these times, in these, I'm going to say genocidal times, uh, we're, we're in big trouble. So that's why I come with a lot of mixed emotions, but also appreciation and gratitude for the invitation. I would like to not give a standard Dharma talk, per se, where I'm talking at you and you're like, yeah, okay, 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 okay. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but I would much prefer to have a Dharma conversation, <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, what I mean by that is I'm first going to introduce these thoughts um, very briefly and then open it up for conversation if that's okay. Is that okay, Ted? That's fine. Okay, cool. Let me jump in it, jump right to it, and then we'll have some conversations. So uh, I, uh, I grew up in the United Methodist Church, um, but when I was introduced to Buddhism, I was sort of introduced to three schools of Buddhism almost at once. Uh, the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, through his book, Touching Peace, Soto Zen, through the Zen Hospice Project, San Francisco, and then retreat practice 
in the insight tradition through Spirit Rock Meditation. So this is Meditation Center. So all of this was swirling around in me still. And I think explains a little bit why I I think that uh, we need to, we as practitioners and practitioners need to deeply examine the mm, conventional teachings that have been passed down to ask ourselves, uh, how do these teachings help us to meet the challenges that are in front of us right now. And I guess in short, I can put it this way. What should the practices in Zen and Buddhism be uh, in the in the rise of authoritarianism in the United States? I'm going to get very specific. Or in the West. How should we be practicing right now? Were these practices introduced, uh, developed in times of war? Many of them were. Are we in a time of war right now? Yes, we are. Do we want to look away from that? I hope not. Do these practices encourage us to look at it? Yes, they do. Do they equip us to look at it and still remain steady? I don't know. So these are some of the things I want to have a conversation about. So I'll just jump into to the thoughts. Um, so if you if you know anything about the Noble Eightfold Path, of which um, these thoughts are inspired by, then you know the way they have been conventionally presented is around individual um, enlightenment. If I, as an individual, engage in these practices, then I will experience uh, nirvana or the end of suffering. I, me alone. And then I will, yeah, not be born again from the Theravadan point of view. Um, and in my view, I don't think that's going to be enough <laughs> for our collective survival. There's nothing in the Noble Eightfold Path about right listening. I mean, you can tease it apart, and this is what I'm trying to do. You can tease it apart, but it doesn't say that listening is a path to the end of suffering. And as a Buddhist practitioner who also is a chaplain and a pastoral counselor who engages in a lot of listening, I've been asking myself, does listening, does deep listening um, help relieve suffering, even for the listener, even for the listener? So here's some thoughts. In Buddhism, we say that much of our suffering is based in narcissism. Uh, other people call it selfing or, you know, ego clinging, but in narcissism. Um, and so I want to suggest that the act of truly listening, listening deeply, is an act of self-forgetting. Not self-negating, but self-forgetting, because we are really focused on the person, uh, the people, uh, their, their ways of communicating. That's where our focus is. And this, this kind of deep listening is a form of selflessness. And from the Buddhist and Zen points of view, I believe, and maybe even from my own point of view now, selflessness is a type of liberation. So listening can be a path to liberation. So also I should say that uh, when I was in chaplaincy training at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies, we were taught to give a Dharma talk to a Buddhist audience and also 
use the elements of that same talk in a secular way, to stripping out all the Zen language, uh, stripping out the Buddhist language and giving the essence of the same talk to a secular uh, audience. So I'm calling this practice as I'm developing it, right listening and also listen upward. And by listen upward, what I mean is listen in such a way that a person uh, gets beneath the surface and brings upward what is true for them, what is authentic for them. So I told you about the first point uh, that this kind of listening is uh, selfless and liberatory. The second point, when we engage in right listening or listening upward, we do so having removed or at least bracketed it. Uh, uh, the intention to hear what we want to hear. In our society, uh, we have a culture that um, that offers us many opportunities to hear what we want to hear and avoid what we don't want to hear. So this kind of, of listening is, a, so you can say, a um, commitment to hear whatever arises, um, and should we hear what we don't want to hear, which will, that will happen and will happen repeatedly, we will recognize through mindfulness um, the desire to hear something else and then refrain from judging ourselves for that desire because it's just natural to have our needs met, to have our wants met. That's natural. This practice, uh, the practices we are engaged in is kind of flipping that um, so that we can steady ourselves and fortify ourselves to accept things as they are, reality as it is. So then we reattune ourselves to what is actually being said, recognizing that I wanted to hear something else, recognizing that this is what I heard. Um, I want to reattune myself to what is real, what's actually being said. And we also resist the dynamic of reinterpreting what we've heard. Because if we listen deeply enough and actively enough, I, I believe most people can say what it is they want to say the way they want to say it, and we don't need to reinterpret it for them. The third point, uh, by forming the intention to listen and be perceived as the listener, um, the person communicating to us has a much better chance of experiencing a sense of belonging. And I think what we're seeing in our society now is it's so much division, uh, so much uh, emphasis on telling others who the other is, convincing uh, others that we can't get along, that the other is the enemy, that we need to be prepared to fight and so on. Of course, it is not in our practice to be manipulative and to try to confirm a person's perception of us. But I think if they do perceive us as listening, um, then, and we are doing our best to be a listener, we are also engaging in the practice of generosity. And when received as generous, are listening as a gift, then I think there's a possibility that the person who is being heard um, will have some relief from the feeling of alienation and isolation. Uh, the fourth point is this, and uh, 
I feel like I want to say this. I'm not good at any of this. I'm working on it. (laughs) I work on it every day. I work on it. Okay. So fourth point, patience. Uh, Patience is a virtue, right? You've heard this. Patience is a virtue. And it is a quality of character, a parami or a paramita. Um, And we usually really appreciate patience when we are on the receiving end of it, when we're on the receiving end of it. Uh, So I ask the question, why not offer this benefit of patience to others? Why not offer that as as a gift? Now, we know because we are human beings, or I should say, I know, I shouldn't speak for you. I know. (laughs) that I can't listen to somebody go on and on and on and on about the same things over and over again. Even as a pastoral counselor, I'm not able to do that. However, I will say this, even in that listening, there are ways to engage with right speech, good timing, right intention, um, asking clarifying questions. Um, in order to re-engage in the conversation and sometimes even just to say, you know what, I'm sorry, I got lost on such and such. Will you catch me up to where you are? I'm sorry, I got distracted. Letting people know that you are interested in hearing uh, what they have to say and then um, skillfully bowing out of the conversation when the time is right. The fifth point, listening upwards involves, as I mentioned before, right speech. And in this in this way, what I mean is um, we try to refrain from unnecessary interruptions. Um, and we try to refrain from imposing our own story on top of another person's story as a way of minimizing their story and even as a way of maximizing their story, just letting the story be without adding our story to it. Now, also, there are times, though, when a person feels like I am the only one who has experienced what I just told you. And because I'm the only one who has experienced this, uh, I feel like I'm apart from everyone else. No one can understand me or know me. And there are times when just telling a little bit of our story that might be similar to another person's story helps them to feel reconnected again and not so um, strange, weird, or alienated. Mm -mm. The sixth point, listening upward means uh, paying attention to another person's suffering, whether that uh, suffering is in the story itself, in the narrative itself, whether it's in the body, as in the body language, a combination thereof. You know, sometimes we tell stories where the words don't match the affect or the body language. And so in right listening or listening upward, what we're trying to do is uh, receive the complexity and the confusion of others. And sometimes that leads to frustration, but that's why we have mindfulness and mindfulness of the breath in particular, because then we can soothe ourselves through that frustration and get reconnected into the um, conversation again, into listening. I've mentioned mindfulness before, point seven, listening upwards or right uh, right uh, listening is a practice that incorporates the fruits of our mindfulness practices and our meditation practices. 
and it works in the body. And the manifestation in the body is uh, towards a, a non-anxious presence. Because, you know, when people perceive us as being agitated when they're listening, they, they tend to uh, shut down. And what we're trying to do is listen upward, you know, help bring the authentic uh, to the fore. And then the last point I want to mention right now is listening upwards contributes to enlightenment. And that's what we say the Buddhist project <laughs> largely is about uh, waking up, waking up to what is real becoming enlightened. Um, and in this time of great effort to obscure what is real, in this time where there has been an acceptance in a very short period of time, um, an acceptance of the react of the mm, how can I put it? The the value of having alternative facts, that that's valid. I should say the validity of having alternative facts, um, that this is uh, what I'm calling Mara-ism. Much effort being put into obscuring reality, into um, a collective delusion. And so I'm hoping that our listening practices will help us kind of do a man manjushri through that so that we can be real with each other and for each other. And so in essence, that's what I'm thinking about. My concern is, uh, is finding out how we can strengthen our bonds with each other. And I'm hoping that uh, through listening, um, we can do that. So I said I wanted to introduce the practice right right on so that we can have Dharma conversation. And so now I would like to um, invite all of you into some conversation about uh, listening. What makes it, well, first of all, did any of this make sense? Um, if so, what makes the most sense to you? What doesn't make sense to you? How can, um, how can our bonding the possibility, the potential for our bonding be improved for our collective well-being. That's what I'm concerned about. So let's open it up. And thank you for listening. I have a question. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Yeah. Hold on, you're breaking up. <coughs> Is everything okay, Eric? Mm -hmm. Okay. You mentioned when you started this that listening is selfless. And I don't understand that. It seems to me that I need to keep in mind that words are meaningless. So what they're saying may mean something different to them than the way I'm interpreting them. It seems to me that I need to be in my body so that my mirror neurons, that part of my brain, that watches other people and kind of interprets their overall body language to help me understand them. Understand. So that works. So I, I, I feel that I need to be more myself when I'm trying to listen to somebody and understand them rather than being selfless. Can you expand a little bit more on, on how you, what you mean when you're saying listening 
to someone carefully is a selfless thing. Mm -hmm. Yep. Thank you. What's your name? Hold on. We're having another technical difficulty. It's okay. She needs to talk. Right. But I can't hear her. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes. Now we can hear you. Okay, good. What's your name? My name is Eric. Eric? Yes. Thank you, Eric. Thank you. Okay. So when I talk about selflessness in, uh, in this practice, and typically when I talk about selflessness in the practice as a whole, Buddhism, Zen as a whole, what I'm talking about is, uh, in part, it is the um, refraining from the clinging and craving to satisfy our own desires. So that's part of what I mean by selfless. The other part is uh, when when I think about the fruits of of um, the Brahma Vihara practices, loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, and sympathetic joy. When I think about those practices all together, and I think about the um, I'll say the psychological impact those practices have had on me. I just, I don't know. I just have this, uh, I don't know. It's like, uh, it's almost a complete, almost a completely different posture towards others. That is almost, almost, I'm going to use this word for the time being, almost sacrificial. In the moment, it's all about them, and so that's what I mean, Eric. I have a question. It, it, feel, it feels like we can't avoid telling ourselves a story about what we're hearing. That I find that when I hear something that makes me angry or reactive. I think of the angry story, but then I, I notice that and I change it and I think about how to make it a positive, connective story. But I'm still telling myself a story about it in both ways. Is there a way to take it in without telling ourselves stories about it? Mm, is there a way of taking uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But but here's what I think. First, first of all, what's your name? Katie. Katie, did I get that right? Yes. The there's a there's some kind of distortion in the in the speaker and mic, so sometimes I'm not I'm not hearing it. Um, is there a way to do this without telling ourselves stories? Um, I will I will I'll put I'll put it this way. When we do tell ourselves a story, can we acknowledge that it's a story? Okay, that's the first thing. Acknowledge that I, this body, this mind, this being has been trying to make sense of my life experiences my entire life. The way we try to make sense of these life experiences is through stories. We reduce it to, to words, right? Um, and those words for, our, for ourselves have some kind of meaning and help us make sense of things. So when we are activated by another person's expression, 
activated in terms of reminded of a story. Our practice in mindfulness, our practices in mindfulness, and also in non-attachment is, oh, I recognize the story. This is how I operate. Yeah, okay, I'm gentle with that. That's how I operate. This is the story. Okay. And also, I recognize that this story has a certain impact on me, might might even get in the way of me receiving the person I'm listening to. And recognizing that it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that's how, how I am. That's how I'm conditioned. That's my habit energy. Now I've noticed it. Let me reattune um, to the present moment and this person in front of me. And no, try to notice that if their story is being completely filtered by my own story. And when I say uh, that this is ongoing work, this is one of the reasons, Katie, why this is ongoing work. Yeah. Um, I have uh, just uh, thanks so much uh, for this, bringing up this topic. Uh, my name's Carrie, and okay. I um, I thought about this um, significantly. <laughs> and when when speaking about right speech, how that listening aspect within that uh, within the Buddhist teaching has been absent, and or at least kind of underneath it all, and yet for me. Um, to bring up right speech, you have to bring up right listening. I mean, it's almost, you know, like you're saying, it's like hand in hand. If I'm not listening to, to one, to my words, my conditioned words, the story in my head, um, the speech is something that follows the listening and the listening follows the speech. So to be in connection and compassion with myself around that, and then to be in connection and compassion with others in that, right, in that space of, of listening, of receiving, of truly being there. And if you have ever had that experience of being truly listened to, what a, an amazing gift. What an amazing gift. Um, and so I'm just so excited. I kind of wanted to jump up and down <laughs> when you started talking about this because it is what's happening. It's happened. The not listening, right, in our politics, the not listening from one nation to another of, of people's needs. Um, how could have that saved the World Trade Center from falling down? How could have that saved people from starving and being homeless? Um, I just thank you. Thank you, Katie. Yeah. Thank you so much. I, I don't know if I'm the one who's moderating, but I do see Adam Adam's hand up. I did raise my hand. Um, so um, I think uh, what's coming across to me um, is with listening, there's sort of this prerequisite of having a, a big kind of don't know mind um, and a, a sense of openness and a sense of um, letting go of judgment where possible. Um, and I, I can absolutely recognize that as being helpful. Um, I also think that there's a part of listening compassionately that involves 
um, kind of nurturing mind. Um, and I think that where, where I tend to get the most activated and where it's really hard for me to listen tends to be when somebody says something that I have some kind of judgment, it, it's harmful, right? Somebody says something that to me feels threatening to people that I care about, or um, maybe even seems harmful to the person saying it themselves. Like I might, I might get an extreme uh, reaction internally if it feels like you're harming yourself or you're harming others that I care about or anyways. Um, and so I, I guess I'd, I'd love to hear if you have anything to say about balancing that kind of don't know open mind with that nurturing connected um, care. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you, Adam. Uh, I will just say for the time being that I think they're in a way the same. I don't think uh, there's much in the way of difference between don't know and nurturing. For me, my understanding of don't know mind is nurturance. Uh, it's open. It's curious. It is um, not arrogant. Right? It's not narcissistic. It's not trying to feed uh, our uh, desire to be puffed up and the know-it-all, the smartest person in the room. Um, so the question is, how long can we hold on to that don't know mind? And whether we should hold on to it. <laughs> At what time do we let go of it, right? And say, but, but this much I do know that this kind of behavior hurts, right? And we're in a period right now, seemingly, Oh, and by the way, I want to give a I want to give a disclaimer. Yeah, disclaimer. I like to talk about things that people don't want to talk about. <laughs> I've I've noticed this about myself, especially lately. I've been getting in trouble a lot. <laughs> Talking about things that people don't want to talk about. Either it's the inappropriate place, you shouldn't have brought that up, Io, at this place, at this time. This is not relevant, it's not germane, it's not blah blah blah. Okay. So, uh, Adam, you're making me think about the fact that I think largely we still don't know how to talk about this war. Um, seemingly, the we could talk about Russia and Ukraine. There was no threat to uh, doxing. Very, you know, very little in the way of threat of being canceled. Um, there was uh, an understanding, seemingly collectively, nationally, about who was right and who was wrong. Um, and there seemed to be no uh, retaliation in terms of being labeled something uh, by saying, yeah, we have a per particular position. Now, the war in the mi Middle East right now, I mean, we see many examples of um, attempts at right speech attempts at listening upward being perceived as a threat which could then come with a label um ostrac being ostracized and so on so the not the don't know mind the nurturing mind that we uh the the right intention that we bring to our speech and listening again there's no guarantee that we will be perceived uh um, within the intentions that we have cultivated. 
And there are times where we have to say what we have to say, even when it's going to be perceived as not nurturing. Because we don't agree with someone's position. This is Mark Emmel. Can I ask a question? Hey, Mark. Yes. Hey, I, I'm a therapist, and I think there's a lot of therapists in the room, and we're all therapists, ultimately, anyway. Um, but I'm I'm just so uh, happy to hear what you're saying today, and I hope you put this in a book. And if you do, I'll buy it, like, today. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, years ago, I had a book on my shelf, and it was called uh, Beware the Talking Cure, The Hazards of Psychotherapy. And it was a real critical look at therapy by a guy named Terrence Campbell. And so uh, I wrote him and I said, uh, I feel kind of slapped around by your book here, but I kind of like it because I was hearing I was hearing the few things I was doing right and all the things I was doing wrong. And it was it was like so I hear when you talk and you said, I'm not good at this stuff. My version of that, I say on a good day, I can do some really good work. And it usually has to do with just listening and being present. I have all these stories I want to tell. I'm kind of a class clown. I have to hold back all the time. I'm finally getting a little better in my old age, just being just being present and quiet. Um, but I got Eric's point, though, is more I was thinking it's more like active listening. I do try to that's part of being present for me, just listening. Um, and, and that that is technique and that is that is um, very affirming. But I was just thinking on my best days, once in a great, great while, when I used to commute a half hour to and from my office, I would get overwhelmed with a sense of peace on the way home. And it wasn't, I, and it was so conspicuous, I couldn't figure out why this was happening. So mm-hmm. it was, it, my only theory was, it wasn't even that I was doing good work that day, just that I was focused on other people all day, like all day, eight hours, nine hours. Yeah. So it's something, that, so it's nothing I was intending to happen. It just happened on days when I was able to sit down and shut up for a significant period of time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and those people that know me know that's very difficult for me. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this has just been so good and again i say I, I pick out the little morsels that i'm doing right and then I, I look at the things i try to look at them the square of things where i've missed opportunities because i was trying to tell my own story to someone maybe out of a sense of making them feel better but i took the ball from them mm-hmm. this thing. so uh this is good i go back to work tomorrow slightly better person <laughs> thank you for that Okay, Mark, thank you. I want to follow up with you about something. Uh, I want to follow up with the whole community about something you said. So I'm going to change my view so I can see as many people as I can. Actually, maybe um, we could do just a little uh, show of hands. I heard Mark say, we are all therapists. How many people agree with that? (laughs) I'm checking out. I'm not seeing a lot of agreement and that's okay. Okay. But I do see some agreement. Okay. All right. So um, here's what I think, Mark. I'm so glad that you mentioned that. Here's what I think is the opportunity. The opportunity is for us to ask ourselves, do we want to live in a way that is therapeutic for others? Okay, now I'll put it that way. Now let's see. Let's see your hands. Do you want to live in a way that is therapeutic? Oh, okay. You know, you got to be careful when you talk to Zen practitioners. You got to put it right. 
Okay. <laughs> I said the right way. <laughs> Don't label me as a therapist, but let's look at the the practices and processes we engage in. Um so that I mean, otherwise, why are we doing what we're doing to cause more pain and suffering, to wreak more havoc in the lives of others, to cause ourselves more suffering? I don't think so. I don't think so. When we sit, when we sit, that is a therapeutic act because stuff comes up, right? Um, Thich Nhat Hanh would say the the seeds from our store consciousness comes up. Freud would say, right, all that stuff in our subconscious, unconscious minds comes to pre-consciousness and beyond. And so when we sit, that is a therapeutic act towards ourselves. That is nurturance for ourselves, even though it may feel horrible at times. If you're like me and you go on a retreat, you're going to need at least three days before it doesn't feel horrible. (laughs) But I recognize it as therapeutic. So if if we want to live lives of healing um, and positive regard, positive benefit for the well-being of others, to um, commit to improving our ability to listen to others may go a very, very long way. As Katie was asking, what harm could have been prevented just by listening? And I think that is a great uh, thing to contemplate, great question to contemplate. I see Josh's hand up. Yeah. uh, How do we deep listen when we feel like we're getting a lot of deception from the speaker? You know, Josh, I had a hard time hearing your question. I wonder if you, maybe if you speak closer into the mic. Or if somebody else was able to hear it, if. Yeah, so okay. how do we have deep listening when we feel like we're getting a lot of deep deception from our from the speaker we're listening to? Uh-huh, yeah, mm-hmm. you're listening to the deception. Yeah, but how yeah. do you listen, how do you, what, how do you kind of filter that out? Or um, what's okay. the right way to deal with that? Yeah. Um, well, that's, I'm so I'm so glad you asked that question, Josh, because um, as I think about uh, the culture that we are living in now, I feel like I have been burdened with a lot of gaslighting. I don't know if you feel that way. Every day, almost every day for the last several years has been I've had to receive something in the form of some kind of gaslighting. And so when we're trying to listen deeply to someone who is engaging in deception, um, part of it is for me, uh, if I'm at my best, like Mark said, if if I'm at my best, if it's a good day, (laughs) if it's a good moment, I can recognize it as suffering. Wow. Okay. So this is part of the manifestation of your suffering. 
that rather than say you are in deep pain and anguish, that you feel uh, perhaps insecure or afraid, um, or you need to get something that you want, but you can't say it outright because you're afraid that you can't uh, tolerate not getting it. Um, or you don't think you're lovable just as you are. So you put on a different face. I mean, how many of us are really like foreign to this uh, need to deceive ourselves and others? Yeah. Maybe I need to do this for my own protection. Um, just to see that, yeah, it's suffering. And I can listen to that. I can listen to that, the suffering, the deception, and I can be available for it. And if it's a situation where we can actually engage with one another, maybe through um, the practice of patience, maybe we can be in the conversation long enough for um, what is real, what is beneath the deception to arise. And I know this sounds so idealistic, um, but maybe if we're engaged long enough for what is real to arise, if we can refrain, if we can refrain from creating the conditions that led to the deception in the first place, then maybe there's a greater chance for bonding across our differences. Maybe, lots of maybes. I just think it's worth trying. That's the thing. I, like I said, I'm working on it and there are no guarantees, um, but I think it's worth I think it's worth uh, trying to become good at this because I agree with Mark in that um, maybe we're not all therapists, but um, many of us have greater capacities to live our lives more therapeutically if we try. Yeah. Hi, my name is Tim. I have a question. Yeah. It's a kind of a follow-up. So uh, I, more and more, I seem to be contending with, a, there's a lot of misinformation going around. And my concern is that, like, I'm not above that, you know. If I mm -hmm. listen to that enough, I'm going to get just slurped up with all that stuff. Is yeah. there something in your practice that helps you to um shield yourself or enable you to parse parse through some of this misinformation how do you contend with that mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i'm swimming in the same culture of misinformation you are in <laughs> women in it right? Yeah. right um i get i get irritated sometimes mad a little bit when I begin to doubt things that I didn't doubt before because we live in a culture now to doubt everything, right? You don't know what it, don't know if anything that you're reading, hearing is true. Um, I, I pay, I try to pay closer attention to when people in power are using power to define their opponents. That's one of the things that I'm paying 
closer attention to. And then asking myself, what is to be gained? What is it that they're trying to gain from this? And then re remove myself from that line of, of thought uh, because I see the danger in it. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I don't have access to the truth, right? Any more than anyone else does. But I do feel like at some point, I, at some point I have to trust my own experiences of things. And uh, it's just amazing how in a short period of time, uh, the, the projects of deception, of Marism have taken hold in our culture. And maybe remembering, maybe remembering how things were before uh, the consolidation of power around authoritarianism might be a pathway. But it is definitely a challenge, Tim. And my hope is that we don't just throw up our hands and say, well, that means I shouldn't listen to people. I still think we I still think we have to listen to people because it is a mm, it's how we become more human to, towards one another. And if we can become more human towards one another, more uh, recognizing our relatedness to one another, then we will be, and this is so important to me, Tim, then we will be less apt to act violently against others because we got swept up into some propaganda about the evil of people, um, especially from various groups. Do you have advice in this regard, Tim? Tim, did you? I, 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 uh, I, uh, it's, uh, you know, the world kind of turned upside down. So, um, the Sangha has helped me to do things for myself that I do for me what I couldn't do for myself. So that I'm not isolated in this uh, situation. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And, and if you don't mind, sometimes I do like to keep people in the hot seat. Let me know if this is uncomfortable for you. <laughs> is there is there one thing aside from being part of community, which is huge? Is there something else that the Sangha has helped you be able to do that you weren't able to do by yourself? Um, the listening up that you mentioned, mm -hmm. um, it's helped me do that. Yeah. So, uh, that's a kind of compassion, but it's also, uh, the other side of that is a self-compassion, which, uh, um, it helps me to deal with, uh, you know, this, this world upside down thing. Mm -hmm. um, if I feel myself getting too uh, caught up in this uh, situation where, like you say, uh, it's set up now, uh, Middle East, you can't even talk about it. They, they've got you, they've, they've sort of uh, put, they've backed, hey, you can't even talk about it. And I used to live in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. 
So um, I come to the Sangha to not feel separate. Thank you, and I'm so glad. Hallelujah. 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 (laughs) Right. Did y'all hear that? I think that's so important. I hope you all heard what Tim said and that you felt it. And I'm guessing that there are other people in the Sangha who have similar experiences. And this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Thank you, Tim. And may I say, you can we can talk about it. We can talk about these things. We have to talk about these things. Just recently, and maybe some of you received uh, a, a petition. There are many petitions around. Um, recently, I received a, a petition uh, to sign uh, for a ceasefire uh, in the Middle East. And um, I think also within the this particular pet- petition, um, there were, depending on what lens you use to read these things, uh, word by word, paragraph by paragraph, um, there was uh, some sense towards uh, um, solidarity for Palestinians and solidarity for Israelis. So it was kind of balanced. There were I could imagine someone else reading it and saying it wasn't balanced at all. Yeah. But I felt like it was balanced and I didn't sign it. Instead, I called one of the people who wrote it and was distributing it. And I asked, can we do something different? And uh, he said, well, I don't know what else to do. And I don't know if this will be effective at all. And I said, but let's try something different. And then my idea was for um, some Buddhist practitioners and others, they'd be so inclined, some Zen practitioners to get together um, and contact the chaplain of the Senate. His name is Reverend uh, uh, Barry Black. And I said, why don't we engage in conversation with the chaplain of the Senate? Because we could perhaps engage on the level of religious leader to religious leader with someone who has access to the powers that be. And the reason why I think that he could be a good conversation partner is because of um, his stand on gun reform after the killing of children at the Christian school in Nashville. Made a very rare statement within a prayer that the Senate, that Congress is paralyzed around gun reform, engaging in how, I think he put it this way, praying for the miraculous, which is causing paralysis. So I think there's some engagement that can take place. And of course, deep listening, listening upward, right listening would be required if the access is offered. We have to find our ways. And also we have to stand up for ourselves. We need to know 
I think deep in our hearts, uh, deep in our hearts, how, um, how the uh, four noble truths help us arrive at an, a social analysis. Yeah, there's su there's suffering, and there are causes of suffering. Let's stop there for a moment. What are the causes? Once we determine what the causes are, can we engage in, um, it may be optimistic, but the belief that there can be an end to these causes? Can we dwell there for a moment? And if we can dwell there, then hopefully our imagination will soar. <clears throat> imagination will soar. And then we've got the noble eightfold path that can help uh, shape and guide thoughts and behaviors around the cessation of the suffering. But I feel confident in saying if people stay quiet about what's going down, it'll keep going. It'll keep going. We can talk about it. And it will come with consequences. And we will listen. <laughs> because we want to be therapeutic in the world. Good morning. Good morning. Hello. Hi, I'm looking for you. Where are you? I'm yes, in the Oh, okay. I'm in the middle. Um, I'm Tanya. Hey, Tanya. And I just wanted to um, say a realization that I've had kind of between the conversation about deceptive speech and that that's real, that we have people that are intentionally speaking that way. And then Katie's observation of many times we're listening with our own story. And it just occurred to me that I guess one of the things that gets in my way sometimes is thinking that I am beyond being the deceptive person. Um, because I want to have this vision of myself that, hey, I would never be the one who's using deceptive speech that's um, not using right speech. And, you know, it occurred to me that exactly for the point that Katie made, hey, I'm always listening to this under some lens, some story of my own, um, that sometimes that is the case, that I am the one who's um, yeah, I am the one who's being deceptive sometimes. And I just realized that's probably really helpful in order to be able to um, listen um, because if I'm not able to acknowledge my own capability of being that deceptive person, then I'm not probably able to really come and listen. 
Oh, thank you, thank you so much for facilitating facilitating this conversation because I think um, this dialogue is able to you know bring different ideas and perceptions and help us all um, come to new realizations ourselves. Thank you. Thank you, Tanya. And also, I want to thank you for sharing something about yourself that I think maybe a lot of people wouldn't say or haven't realized. Um, and we all have our protective strategies, right? We all do. Um, and sometimes we are deceptive intentionally, unintentionally. You think I tell my mom everything? I don't tell my mother everything. <laughs> It is not in her best interest to know everything. <laughs> um, I, I, um, and and likewise, I was uh, uh, having uh, breakfast with lunch with our daughter yesterday, who's twenty seven, and she said, "Mommy, I don't tell you everything." And I said, "I know, and I and I know why you don't, and I know why you don't." Um, so, yeah, so there are many reasons why we say what we say, choose not to say what we say. But I think ultimately what we're what we're talking about today is living in a, a society that has embraced Maraism to such a degree that um, that it's dangerous. It's life threatening. And in our practices, especially when we take on bodhisattva vows, what are the ways, the strategies that we will live out those vows in a way that supports liberation, um, liberation without discrimination? Yeah. I see Judy's hand is up and then there's one more hand up and, and then Ted. Oh, we're about to wrap up. I'll yeah. let Ted come out. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to say this because it is such a wonderful exchange. But we're going to have to move on to our announcements now. So we have time for some other things that we have planned for today. So thank you, Ayo. Thank you all. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. And be well until we meet again. Yeah. <laughs>